Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Track Talk. My guest today is my dear friend and legendary drummer, the great Andy Newmark. And in this episode, we talk about three of Andy's songs that he's recorded. We talked about his first major recording, Anticipation by Carly Simon, when Andy was 21 years old. Love is Alive by Gary Wright. More Beautiful Playing by Andy, a few years after Anticipation. And we couldn't not include a John Lennon song. And that song is Nobody Told Me. Uh, it was recorded during the Double Fantasy Sessions in 1980, but was actually released in 1984 on the Milk and Honey record. So buckle up. I hope you enjoy this. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you on the other side. Thanks. And speaking of Andy Newmark, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Andy Newmark. Yo, yo, President Christopher. <laughs> I never get tired of that, Andy. Oh, I love that. <laughs> oh, it's good to see you. Long time no see. It's been like a week since I last saw you. <laughs> yeah, we got to stop meeting like this. I love it. I love it. You know, I, I've made a decision, Andy, that I'm going to I'm gonna bug you and Jim Keltner and these important people uh, Steve Gadd, Ricky Murata, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bug you guys as much as I can to uh, to document all this great music, and and for generations to come. So I well, I think that's probably an intelligent move, only because we'll you know we'll be gone soon. Well, I don't know about soon. But <laughs> I don't know about soon. Uh, it's so good to see you. Well, I'm going to kind of surprise you. I know when we talked about doing this, I, I sent you an email with some ideas for songs. The problem with you, Andy, is you've recorded so many great songs, so many. And usually when I do these track talk shows, it's like one, maybe two songs. I'm going to try to squeeze in a few today without keeping you on here, you know, till the middle of the night. Um, and here's something. So I want to just set this up by saying last week when you were kind enough to be on that show that we did to uh, celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, we talked about Ringo and you made an excellent observation. You said Ringo was in his early 20s when he when he played all those songs. Uh, and you made a point of saying that you said, you know, he was like, what, 21, 22 uh, and, and that you, I remember you saying you wouldn't have had the, uh, maturity, let's use that word to, to have the music sit down the way it did and play those songs. Well, I'm about to prove you wrong. Um, and I'd like to play a song that you recorded when you were 21 and we've talked about this before and it's, you've talked about it probably a million times. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. It's anticipation, Carly Simon. It's such a great track. Your playing is so beautiful, so perfect, so mature for a 21-year-old kid with a lot of chops who had to come in and, and make it sit down. So can, can we play that song and have you talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my gut reaction to that, though, is that anticipation, um, well, is sort of a busiest busy-ish drum part. And I i mean, I did not achieve the, the simplicity and the whatever that Ringo has on his records. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. So 
I know what you're trying to say, but I think if I had been presented in a fiction, if you can imagine a fictional world where me at 20, whatever age Ringo was when he did those songs, say he was 22, Mm -hmm. I I was 14 at the time, 13, 14. In a fictional world, if someone walked into the studio and presented me with those songs that John and Paul wrote, that I'm referring to, just as completely new songs that I'd never heard before. They're just two guys come in with songs or hear the songs, let's work them up, let's record them. I would not have ever pulled it up, played it with the simplicity and the honesty and the intent that Ringo played those songs. I still would have, there would have been more fills. I mean, even Jim Keltner admitted the other night, he said <laughs> if he had played on those songs when <laughs> back when he was younger, he, he said, literally, I would have overplayed. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I appreciate you, you know, trying to, you know, turn it all, give me a compliment, etc. But I know I would not have played those songs as straightforward as Ringo. And I think part what reason those tunes and those tracks still stand up today is because he's so sort of almost invisible. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. I, yeah. He, he's, he's so, he's so supportive. The, 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 the drum parts are just it, purely supportive to what those great songs are that John and Paul wrote. And, and, um, but yeah, some folks, some folks yeah. say, well, you know, if, if you notice the drums, then they're not doing their job. <laughs> you know, uh, somebody said that recently. Yeah. Yeah. And that if you don't notice the drums, when you listen to a song, <laughs> the drummer is doing his job because he's blended in so much. Yeah that you actually don't notice the drum track. And and I know I am guilty of <laughs> playing things that basically are like saying, yeah, dig me, dig this. I throw licks in that are like, you know, my crazy wacky shit that I dream up, right? I mean, <laughs> that's ego. I mean, that is not a guy who wants to be invisible. That's somebody who's, you know, I'm I'm just, I'm not capable of being as chilled as Ringo. <laughs> I, I dig, but I, but I will say that really doing, listening to so much of your stuff over the last few days, and, and uh, I, I look at it, you know, as a drummer, not just as a fan of yours, but as a drummer, um, I think you play parts that, compliment what's like never overplaying I, and I, I know you would disagree with me but i think anticipation is a great example of of like you're 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 putting like exclamation points and you're putting accents and you're putting colors into places that you know we've yeah. talked about the, those breaks that you take are just like those you know i mean can, can we should we play the song and yeah yeah and, and yeah the, because i i know some of those tunes in that list I was thinking, Jesus, I'm not even sure 
what they sound like or what I played. So it was going to be <laughs> awkward for me to talk about it because I don't remember exactly what I played. So I was curious if you were going to like play these songs to the audience listeners. Yes. Yeah, we'll we'll play them. We'll play them. I when you play it, I'm just going to excuse myself quickly to um, ask my partner to uh, hook, get me a cup of tea. Okay, you got it. All right. So I'll disappear for a moment, but I, I need a cup of tea to to power through this, Mr. <laughs> President. <laughs> I know it's late in the day. <laughs> All right, everybody, here comes Anticipation. Carly Simon, 1971, a young Andy Newmark on drums, his first... Uh, my understanding, and we'll confirm this when he comes back with his tea, this was Andy's first major session. He'd been in the studio before, but this was the first, you know, sort of big session that he'd ever done. So check it out. Here it comes.
Wow. Man. Come on. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I I see it all hangs together. I, I'm not regretting it or, you know. Good. Okay. And the reason that there's, um, how would you say, we have been performing that song for months mm-hmm. in America before we got to England and recorded it. Yeah. So I knew every little accent and, you know, I, I had had time to dive deep into the, the different little nuances and, and, and the vocal and the song. And so you can hear I'm like really like part of the song. I mean, yeah. as if you can sense this is a band that's been playing this live, right? Because it's not just kind of a straight ahead beat through the thing there's there, there's a lot of stuff added you know yeah. and fills and but yeah it all hangs together but um it's because it's because we've been playing it for months yeah yeah so you know that's what happens if you go and you learn a song and you're in the studio and you're learning it for the first time i'm sure i would have played a lot of that much safer I just wouldn't have known where all the pushes and the pulls and this and that. But, you know, I had months and those two drum fills. I think I told you this years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> because I learned the tune three or four months, we were playing them live in America. I was working out those two drum fills like night after night. I was thinking, well, could be this. It's an awfully long space for a drum fill. How about this? I went through hundreds <laughs> of versions of what that fill might have been and was trying them on the gigs. Yeah. You yeah. know, because I, I thought those are two big giant spots for the drum to really shine and like sort of make a statement, you know, it's like no question about it. It was just the drums for like six whole beats. Yeah. I thought, you know, I, I just felt I want to do something really super cool here. You know, <laughs> I, I, I want it to grab people and be a cool drum fill. So, man, I, I was I made up so many different fills and practice them in an effort to try to find like the ultimate fill of death. <laughs> and you did, and- Andy. <laughs> that this, I mean, this, they, the, both of them are unique from each other. You know, the first one's like a safer one, obviously that, you know, you sort of, you're building it. And then the second one, it's kind of like the second one to me, I still get the chills when I, when I hear it, it's just, it's so, it's so not safe, but you you land it. You you. It's like you you you. It's like you're in the Olympics doing the parallel bars, and you you hit the landing perfectly. They sounded like they were rushing. I was tapping my foot through them, and I felt like my foot had to speed up. But I know with the internet, I have found a lot of old songs that are now on the internet. Uh, are fast. I I swear they're faster than they were fifty years ago. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. But now those, I was very conscious then that those fills, uh, 
they pushed the tempo. But let me just give everybody some background. Carly said to me when I met her, which was only a few months before this in New York, she said, I love Russ Conkle. I love Sweet Baby James, which was James Taylor's, um, well, the album that broke enormously big, even yeah. though it took almost a year to break. But that was out. And she said, I love this drumming. I love Russ Kunkel. This is the kind of drumming I like. And I thought, well, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I had heard of James Taylor by then. You know, the record mm -hmm. was breaking through. Yeah, yeah. But I hadn't really studied it. So I got a hold of it, you know, listened, because obviously I wanted to keep the job with Carly. And I thought, <laughs> well, if she loves Russ, I, I better channel and uh, channel Russ as best I can, even though I'm never going to be Russ Kunkel, but at least see where he's coming from. So I listened and um, I saw Russ was playing brushes on a lot of that album. And all those big, like, sort of tom fills, the really sparse, open tom fills he did. Yeah. yeah. That, that's how I perceived them. Um, a little reminiscent sort of, of Ringo, but Russell had his own thing going. But they weren't full of notes. You know, they were really wide open, yes. just eight notes with spaces in between, you know, leaving lots of air. Not digga 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 digga, but just you know, doom doom doom. You know that mm -hmm. California thing or whatever yeah. it is. It wasn't a New York thing. We were all far too busy and you know hung up on ourselves trying to be <laughs> groovy <laughs> and funky. But the West Coast cats like Russ, they had this much more open, laid back thing and left lots of space between the notes and you know much more relaxed than the new york guys you know we we were all trying to be bernard purdy even though he's a genius but so i checked russell out and so those that fill was exactly my take on let me turn this phone off um that was my take on Russell, because those are basically dotted quarter notes. It's taken one and two and, and then I'm just, the notes that come after that are dotted quarter notes. Yeah, yep. You know, if the tempo is like this, two, three, four, boom, 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 right? They're dotted quarter notes. That was me trying to capture Russell's vibe. Yeah, yep. The next one, you know, I, I got more into my own, you know, stuff. But yeah. and interesting, though, just whatever it's worth, those are brushes. Those are those brushes? are not drumsticks. Carly, again, because she liked Russell and he played most of Fire and Wayne with brushes. Yes. And, but that was a thing like playing the same thing you would play with sticks, but with brushes. Was I'd never heard anybody do that, wow. you know, and, and I felt it was, I felt there was enough, not enough bite in the brushes because when you play brushes on the hi hat, there's no point. You can't even hear the hi hat notes. Yeah, yeah. Right? And and if unless you really whack a cymbal really hard with a brush, 
just tapping it, you you get nothing. Right. So the only thing that really comes through on the brushes is that kind of softer backbeat. But it's worth noting that that whole tune, you, what we just heard then, is me playing with brushes and whacking the shit out of them. Holy shit, Andy! I you know. I'll just say during the verse parts where you're where the the snare is very soft, I can hear that, and I always wondered how you dynamically got from that big tom tom sound to playing that really soft. Because I've played this song in in my band, and and when you get to the verse, you know when you play with a stick, it has a sound. It has a very different. It, it's it's a it's a more overpowering type of sound in a soft, quiet place. So that explains to me why the the your snare is kind of more soft sounding during those parts i but i never knew you were playing with brushes well now as i listened to that i got thinking about this and the choruses sound so much more powerful i'm wondering if we did the choruses with drumsticks i i'm now actually wondering yeah did i <clears throat> I have a recollection, maybe, I used to have to switch over from brushes to sticks. Because you know, that big tom-tom, Phil, going into the um, the chorus, yeah. the yeah. Bump, da, 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 that big eighth-note buildup, that, that, I just was listening to that. It didn't sound like brushes. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, now, I'm now wondering, did, did we possibly do the the choruses with drumsticks and actually playing live, there was time to put the brushes down right, and pick up the sticks. And there was also time after the chorus to get rid of the drumsticks and pick up the brushes. I, maybe that's what we were doing because those choruses do sound pretty meaty for a brush. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and I know like in fire and rain, as you said, Russ is playing with brushes, but you can, you can hear the mics are just really open and just, you know, like it's, it's the entire song he's playing with brushes and that's, you hear that, but, but the Tom sound you get in anticipation is, as you say, much meatier, much it, it, I mean, I can, I can play that part again if you want, if you want to hear it or, um, I don't need to. It, yeah. It's just, you know, now that we're really going forensic on it. Yeah. Wow. I'm thinking it through. And interestingly, I just heard on YouTube a few days ago. I don't know why it came up or how. It was Carly performing Anticipation up in Martha's Vineyard outdoors at a marina. Oh, with Rick on drums. With Ricky. Yeah. And I thought, oh, wow, what a nice surprise. Let me listen to this. And, um, you know, obviously, Ricky and I are as close as we are, you know, just curious how he would handle the drum part. And he did the whole tune with drumsticks. Yeah. And I thought, man, it sounds much better. It sounded like another, another You're So Vain with Jim Gordon. Mm. The sticks really, really made it sound like, you know, top 10 AM radio hit record. <laughs> I, I wrote Ricky. I wrote him an email. I said, man, 
this sounds unbelievable. You play all he did in the verses was with the stick, he went over to the cross stick. Mm -hmm. So it quieted down. He wasn't yeah, playing the yep. snare in the verse, just the cross. But it, anyhow, it worked beautifully. But in the choruses, he had that big buildup. And that's what's making me think maybe I too had sticks. Maybe. Well, and you know, there's that press role you play at the end too. It's very, very. Oh yeah, that that's thank you, thank yeah. you. That of course could not be with brushes. Right, right, yeah. I mean, so that, there's you, the you, answer. There is the yeah. answer. Yeah. Those are sticks in the choruses because yeah, you can't do a press role <laughs> with brushes. <laughs> so oh, it just, yeah, it just occurred to me that press roll is just it's just as right at the end of the tune for anybody who. People are familiar with the song, but it's it's genius. It's just that, oh. Yeah. Uh, Ricky played the press roll, and it sounded better than mine. <laughs> I hope he's not watching this. I'll never hear the end of it. I, I was pissed, man. I was like, damn, Ricky's press roll sounds cooler than mine. <laughs> Your press roll is is damn good, damn good. I call it the depressed roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you, Andy, do you have, a, I know you've, you've mentioned, and you told me this story before too, that you had had time to, to work these parts out. Do you have a recollection of how many, how many, I'm sensing that you didn't have to do too many takes when you recorded it because everybody knew the song so well. Well, the way it went down in London with Paul Samuel Smith, who produced it, who produced all the Cat Stevens albums, but yeah. was also the, he was also the bass player in um, the Yardbirds. Yardbirds, right. Yeah, yeah. Paul Samuel Smith. Um, Carly recorded that, I think, by herself. And we, I have this, so much of it, we each overdubbed our parts. Ah, okay. Or, or maybe, maybe we played it live with Carly. And Paul thought, well, I've got a good performance here from Carly and a live vocal, but let's tailor the drum. You know, I just have this feeling I was doing it over and over by myself, not with the band. Mm, okay. But thinking about that now it, it it would have been hard to keep time through those long drum breaks and then come back in with the band if there was no click or no one playing keeping quarter notes going through those breaks how would i have ad-libbed those fills and come out with the i'm just yeah. not sure now but i have this recollection because yeah we did Maybe we did the brush bits and then we'd punch in again for the bits with the sticks. I don't know that it went down live, but we had played the song so much in America that, you know, I I knew every little push and pull and, you know, et cetera. You, yeah. you, you yep. tell it was like it sounds like the road drummer <laughs> you know, who's been playing the song too long and now bordering on almost overplaying. <laughs> no, no, no. By the way, by the way, our good friend Joe Vitale is watching live right now and, and commented more like impressed role. 
I'm with Joe on that one. Yeah. Good well, to see thank you, Joe. you, Joe. I'll take that. <laughs> oh man. Well, can we can we jump ahead to another song that uh, was a, a few years later? Sure. Um, and I'm, I may even skip around and come back to something in between. But um, this is another song. This is sort of guilty pleasure time for me. And I think. Can I add one quick thing? Yeah, of course. Just Andy, to of give, course. give everybody a bit of a giggle. <laughs> On the When we were touring with Carly, do you know what we always called that song? Like amongst the band or, you know, on the set list. And I have an idea. The name of the is. tune was Constipation. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> it's making me wait. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Oh, of course. I mean, it's, it's, it's just ripe for that, right? I mean. <laughs> it happens with bands on the road. Song yeah. titles become weird, some really weird things. <laughs> Oh, that's great. No. <laughs> well, well, this song, um, I think this is this is some of your absolute I mean, all these songs are examples of great playing, your great playing. And this is some of the greatest playing, I think. It's alive, Gary Wright. And it, it's what I love about this is it's got some Andy funky drumming to it, but it's still so pocket, so groovy. Um, I, let me stick a comment in here just so yeah, everybody please. can listen with this in mind. That recording you're about to play, we recorded to a drum box. Okay. I don't know if you can hear it in the mix now, but it's in there. Mm -hmm. And it was just Gary on piano. And me on drums, because he played all the synthesizers. On, there were no guitars on the record. Right. And he had that little drum box, like Sly Stone used on Fresh. Yes. This is like drum boxes that would say Rock 1, Rock 2. And if you turned it on, it would be the whole beat, the bass drum, the snare drum, the hi-hat, you know. Or it would say Tango 1 or Cha-Cha 1. And you just got this little beat with all these little percussion things in it. So that's what we cut this to. Uh, just so no one accidentally thinks that I have perfect time because I don't. Okay. <laughs> the only reason it stands up to a click track is because it was done to a digital drum box. So just wanted to interject that I all had right. help. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. But, you know, I mean, your time is ridiculous. Let's let's face it. Um, but I you know, this I, I just this song was such a uh, such a big song, you know, when it came out, obviously, from from the Dreamweaver record. And uh, I didn't know it was you for a long time or at the time I didn't know it was you. And I only had really started to discover you probably a couple of years. No, I knew who you were playing with Carly, but I guess at the time. I didn't realize this was you on drums, but that's neither here nor there. You know, the the, the hit single from the, the the big hit single was Dream Weaver. Yeah. That is Jim Keltner. Yes. Yeah. It's the only tune Gary wanted him to play on that song. I did everything else, but he wanted Jim to do that one. And and that was really the monster number one hit single that broke broke the album and broke Gary. Yeah. Love is alive. 
it was a single. It may have been, I don't even, it may have been top 10. But, um, I think it was, yeah. It, Dreamweaver is the tune that really broke him wide open. Yeah. I, I talked to Jim about that song, uh, and, and he... I didn't realize that David Foster is playing the, the piano on it. I, I assumed it was like your like Love is Alive that Gary was playing all the keyboards on it, but Jim uh corrected me and said no, it's it's it was I think co written and co produced by David Foster and David's playing the grand piano part on it. Um but it's a mm. it's a beautiful song as well and um Gary passed it, away, you know. Yeah, yeah. I know. Recently. I know. Yep, yeah. All right, go ahead. Well, let's play it. And and was this recorded in London or was this recorded in New York or L.A.? Or? Los Angeles. L.A., okay. Yeah. At Studio Lab. Okay, so at, at the same, like during the same sessions where Jim did Dreamweaver, it was all part of that record. So, yeah, okay. S same room. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 1975, I think, recorded, released, 76 yeah. or sometime around there. Yes. Again, yeah. a, a youngster, just, just a youngster, Andy, you are. So, all right, here it comes. All right, everybody, here comes Love is Alive by Gary Wright with the great Andy Newmark on drums. the drum machine.
All right. <laughs> Another so one. You can hear the drum box. I I yelled, but I don't think you had my mic on. And no, I'm sure yeah. people listen. You in the verses, you could hear these little percussion things. Yeah. Yep. I heard it for sure. I never thought. I mean, it's so yeah. much. It's so much fun to play along with those old drum boxes mm. because they're grooving so deep just by themselves. I mean, yeah. I mean, yes, they're grooving deep, <laughs> even though they sound they. It has a corny vibe, but you know, it's it's in time. They're so much fun to play with. Yeah. But I heard it. I could you hear the? Drum I could box hear it too. Yeah, and and I never thought. That you know, until you said that, Andy, I've heard it a gazillion times, but until you pointed it out, it never really occurred to me that that's what it is. But yeah, I thought it was a percussionist or a you know percussion track laid on top. No, but, it was yeah. the old-fashioned drum box. Uh, what did they used to call them? Rhythm aces. Yeah, something you like know, that. They were things like you'd see a guy in a Holiday Inn playing like a Lowry organ. Mm -hmm. And he'd have the drum box and he'd either use rock one or tango one or cha-cha, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And and they had this really unique character to them because it wasn't just like bass drum, snare drum and hi-hat. There, there was all these little percussive things in there. So they, yeah. they really grooved along nice and bubbly all the time. They just bubbled <laughs> along. And much easier to play with than a click track where you only have got bop, bop, and all that space in between each click. This is like bubbling. You know what I mean? Yeah, you, yeah. Impossible not to play along with it well. It's so easy. Now, well, another that, thing yeah. I just picked up on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am playing four on the bass drum yeah. in the choruses, which I today wouldn't do that. I, I hear that now and go, wow, oh, why did you do that? It, it, it That's not the way I feel that. I would have, I would not have wanted the, the bass drum on the backbeat. Right. One in three was fine, but I can tell there. I don't know why I'm I'm playing four on the foot, and I don't know maybe it was part of what was going on in 1975, where somehow that seems slightly groovy, mm -hmm. but it doesn't suit my taste today. I I I just don't hear the four on the foot. Anyhow, that came as a surprise now hearing that. Yeah, but, um, interesting. What about, um, do you think maybe that had some, did maybe Gary have an idea of how he wanted, not that he told you to play it that way, but maybe he gave you an idea of how he wanted it to feel? Like, not, I mean, disco was sort of a thing happening at the time, and people were a little aware of that. Well, I'm, yeah, I was wondering, is my hi-hat doing the disco hi-hat? Well, during the during, I was going to ask you: Are you playing like hand to hand sixteenth notes during the chorus, during that, or is it just is it just eighth I, eighth notes? I couldn't really tell, but it sounded almost like there is like an opening disco. Yeah, I mean, it could be that I played with both hands on the hi hat, and it could be that I was inferring. The the disco thing, you know, 
yeah. you know, opening yeah. it on the end of every note. My love is a yeah, it's possible. I mean, I don't know. Gary could have suggested it. I mean, yeah, I mean, Gary, I mean, everybody, all the artists, I mean, everyone suggests things. Sure. Yeah. And, and and I probably was conscious of thinking there should be a gear change between the verse and the chorus, which, as I've aged, I move away from that mentality. Sometimes gear changes are do not need to take place on the drums because other instruments take care of the change in gears and atmosphere and intensity. Sometimes it's actually better if the drum doesn't try to go to a new part for, a, you know, the chorus from the verse or something. But I guess in my head, I, whatever. I, it's hard yeah, to I, never remember what happened, but, um, Whatever I, I suppose I was grateful he was just happy with whatever I was doing. He certainly would have told me if it wasn't working for him. But um Yeah. Yeah, I, it there might be sixteenths on the hat and that slight disco vibe, but the bass drum on all four, it just seems odd hearing that now. It's not what my gut would play if I were playing that tune today. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll just say again, Andy, that that I think in this song, the gear change concept works so beautifully because it takes it to another place. And I, and I guess maybe what I'm calling the chorus, you'd almost call the bridge because when I feel like when you're playing the chorus, you go to the bell, you go to the, on the bell of the ride symbol and you're playing like a quarter note and then a triplet like ding, you know, that, 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 uh, that you play throughout the coda and I, those like, it's three different things that you're yeah. doing. Yeah. It's, it's... So the bit then uh, with the hi-hat and the four on the foot, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe that's just like a B section of the verse. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's not even the chorus. I, I, I've lost my focus on that, but it's the middle section. Right, right. Yeah, I guess it is. It's the lead up to the chorus. My my mistake. No, that's okay. Yeah, and the... And, and, uh... You know, again, it's it's it, you're playing that, you know, nice, straight, funky beat. And then you go to that hi-hat thing. And then the the ride cymbal part is just that. That's what always got me when you got to that part and you're playing those little on the bell of the ride cymbal, the little triplet thing that you're doing. It's it's, uh, you know, that stuff on the bell of the cymbal. I still do that a lot, you know, play little syncopated rhythms. Yeah. The thing is, in 1971, when I did that, I was copying Tony Williams and Tony Williams' lifetime because mm -hmm. he would play syncopated up on the bell, but his bass drum would be behind every note on the bell. Yeah. So it would be like, you know, but the foot would be matching the bell. All the beats, yeah. And that really is, it's sort of a groove breaker in a way. It's too much activity on the bottom with the bass drum. So I learned over the years, I got away from it after 71, two or three or whatever. And I, I didn't want to lose the syncopated bell cymbal stuff, but I thought, 
it's that bass drum that's too disruptive to to the to people's songs. It just it's too much. Mm-hmm. So I learned to just keep my foot on the one and the three and do the syncopation on the bell. And without all that weight of the bass drum behind the bell notes, it kind of skipped along and it, it just it it was less intrusive. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I'm doing there. I am syncopating the bell. But I'm not use. I'm not duplicating it with my bass drum, and thank God I, I sort of got away from doing it because it's it's just not what pop records want. They they just don't want all that activity on the bass drum. Yeah, yeah, I I, but, I yeah, totally get. I, yeah. I was still hung up on Tony Williams' lifetime. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say with Tony, it, it worked perfectly because that's. I mean, it was just like it was such a Tony thing to play those. He spoke to me, man. I I mean, I don't know anything about him when he was playing with Miles and playing the bebop and the jazz. I only knew about Tony Williams when Lifetime came out and he started playing. Well, there was some sort of swing bebop in there, but there was a lot of eighth notes. Yeah. And of course, I'm an eighth. I come from the solar system of eighth notes. I'm not a swing guy. And he spoke, his playing spoke directly to me. But yet I know nothing about his days with Miles and bebop never really spoke to me. Yeah. I'm not a bebop jazz guy. I, I'm an eighth note rock and roll guy. But his playing, I remember Ricky Murata and I went to see him down at Arthur's, this club in New York City. Uh, Larry Young uh, on the organ. Uh, and then at one point, Jack Bruce from Cream was playing bass. Oh, and right. John McLaughlin. John McLaughlin was on guitar. Oof. Anyhow, they blew my mind and Ricky's mind. I mean, I Tony was some other planetary shit, man. It yeah. was unbelievable, yeah. but I took a lot from him and it converted it into my own little funky routine but you know it it came from him i was like wow okay okay i i i did that and i you know i it came out like me in the end but it came from him yeah no i i tony definitely influenced you know you're a little older than me but our generation i mean tony was such a major force he yeah. was a force of nature yeah him and elvin a force of nature. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, that's the only way to describe them both. Yeah. You know, they, they, no one can imitate or no one can reproduce or duplicate what they did. It's a singular voice. Yeah. And no one comes, you know, that, that's what's beautiful when you hear someone that has this singular voice and they only know how to sound like themselves. Yeah. Yeah, like, exactly. They just don't, no matter how hard they try, they just <laughs> only sound like Elvin. <laughs> or Tony only sounds like Tony, period. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. That's the was, goal. Yeah. That that should be drummer's goal. To 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 sound like yourself. Mm. I was gonna say in Tony too, when he you know, when he would branch out and play, you know rock and roll 
it sounded like Tony and not, uh, and not, not in a bad way. It just sounded like him. Absolutely. Playing all that, yeah. Playing all that yeah. stuff. It, was, it, it, it wasn't yeah. deep groove rock the way most of us rock and roll guys think of rock and roll. It wasn't the deep groove thing. Yeah. It was his, it, it was his way of doing it. Um, and it might not have worked on a pop record, granted. Right. right. But anyhow, he 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 was not a pop drummer, so whatever. It was believable. Whatever it was, he, he, you could believe him. It was honest. Yeah, Andy, I got one more song. I'm gonna. I'd like to play. I know it's getting late there, on the other side of the pond. I'm cool. I, all right. I'm okay. And if you want to go longer, we don't have to. But I'm I'm on a roll here. My all right. I've got Beautiful. caffeine thing going on now. Beautiful. All right. All right. Well, this is a song that, um, it's a John Lennon song. <laughs> Sorry. What was that name? Uh, John Lennon. Huh? English name rings a bell, but well, you might remember he, he was in a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Beatles, right? Yeah. He That's was a exactly Beatles. the Beatles, the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, I picked this song. There are so many great songs from Double Fantasy that you, I mean, the whole record, there were so many big hits from that record, but this is one that I think is less talked about. It's not from that record. It's from the record that they put out afterward, after John sadly passed away. Uh, and it's called Nobody Told Me. And I, you know, I, I know you recorded it during those Double Fantasy sessions, right? Yeah. A whole bunch of, other songs. And uh, it's certainly a known song, I'm sure, but I think it's one that people don't talk about a lot. And I think it's just some beautiful, groovy, tasteful drumming. So can I? Yeah. Let's, go ahead. let's, let's, let's hit it. All right, here okay. we go. And I love John's count in too. the three, four. Three, four. There's Nazis in the bathroom just below the stairs Always something happening and nothing going on There's always something cooking and nothing in the pot They're starving back in China, so finish what you got
He's doing his um John's doing that da, 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 the triplets on the guitar. Yeah. But it's it's not da 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 da, da it's da, 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 da. it's what he did on the you know that big hit record in 1964. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Was it all my loving or no? Um he played this triplet on the guitar part. Yeah, I think it was all my loving, yeah. It was a difficult part, yeah. right? It, it 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 really wore, tires your wrist out. But he was doing that thing there, that uh, up and down on strings. And you know, one thing I'm quite proud of. I mean, with these recordings, the, this was 1980. Yeah. And click tracks and drum machines had not taken over to that point, and. Um, None of these, none of these things were done with click, which you know, I, it's sort of like, I don't know, it matters to me, right? Because yeah, yeah. sometimes I play with a click so often in the last twenty five years that I wonder sometimes if I can keep steady time without a click. <laughs> so I do get that insecurity, right? So I mean, <laughs> this, everything feels good. I mean it. Just I, you know, the tempos were right for me and the grooves and whatever, but um, it all flows really nicely, and and I'm just proud that it's without a click track. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. No, I'm I'm glad you said that too because I you I'm glad you're proud of it too, and I I always wonder if you're gonna, you know, listen to it and go, oh man, I wish I'd done this, or which is your your you knowing you, it's your tendency to go, oh, I could have it could have been better if I did this, but I think that's as perfect a song and a drum track as there could ever be. It hmm. just works so well. You, you know what I mean? Just the. I had to learn that song to perform. Um, you know, the double fantasy band was brought to Liverpool for the Beatle week in August, 2022. They have a Beatle week at the end of August. Yes. Yeah. Yep. They brought the double fantasy players which included me and Tony Levin and Earl Slick to Liverpool to perform that album. Wow. And we did it with a singer from Liverpool who did a good job of it. 
Yeah. He did a good job, not trying to sound like John, but it, it was good. It was okay. You know, mm-hmm. he was good. But I had to learn that song. I had to learn that song. There's lots of two four bars in there. Mm-hmm. It's not all straight four four. There's two four bars. And yeah, I was a bit excessive on crash cymbals, but that was still at a period in my life where I think anytime I played a drum fill, it was always followed by a crash cymbal. Like I rarely would play a fill and go straight back to the hat. Whereas now I'm, I think, wait a minute, where does the crash really belong? Like instead of it being just a habit, it's now I think, Hey, this might sound better going from the fill right back to the hi-hat without a cymbal crash. Because let's face it, the groove kind of dissipates with a cymbal crash for an instant. You lose that tightness of the hi-hat, you know, right in there, woven in. Yeah, yeah. But now, I mean, it's like I don't play cymbal crashes unless, like, it really feels like this is a place for a cymbal crash. It's a special moment. But then I can hear I was quite excessive, excessive with cymbal crashes. Anyhow, it all hangs together. Yeah, uh, yeah. I often have a problem with those kind of, it's not, that's not a shuffle, but it's almost a shuffle. Almost a shuffle, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's quarter note. It's not, it's not that. It's, 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 and Tony on the bass is boom, boom, boom. So it's just, it's quarter notes, right? I can hold the time down better when I'm going I can control the meter. Yeah, when I'm just yeah. doing the quarter notes, I have a little weakness where I my time might speed up just because I don't know something if I'm just doing the quarter notes, I'm prone to a tempo fluctuation. Yeah, but yeah. I held it together. I mean, this had a vibe, and and it sat down. I, you know, I, I was it it passed my brutal exp- inspection. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. You really held it down. And and can I ask two things? So, the the cymbal swells that come that come back out of the chorus. Those were, were overdubbed, probably. I sus I suspect they were, yeah. because you've got to use both hands, right. Swell the symbol and then you you clamp it yeah. right on the one. So you get that yeah, yep. Like backward tape or some funny sound effect. I don't I mean if there's a backbeat going on leading up to that or under the symbol swell, if there's a backbeat, clearly it was an overdub. Yeah. You can't do both. You you need both hands to do that. Right. And I and, it, and it's I, a I'd have to play it, but I, I I think that is the case. I think it's, but I think I think it fits in. And I wondered if maybe you just recorded it, and they just like you had mentioned. You told me once before that they flew in the fill and starting over, like that was just flown into that spot. So I wondered if maybe they flew in that. You just recorded a swell, and then they, or did you actually maybe listen to the track? I did. Just, yeah, and played the swell to it. Yeah, yeah. It that's some. It's an overdub. I often did. When people said, you know, want to add anything, it's it's I did that a lot. Yeah. And and so that was me 
specifically going back into the room and doing that right at that part of the tune to fit, you know, to yeah, suck it yeah. right down as it comes out of the chorus, it's right beautiful. back down into the yeah. pocket for the verse. It, it's just a cool effect, really. So that uh, was intentional, a part made for the song. Yeah, yep, beautiful. And Phil, you're talking about in starting over. Yeah. In which the drums sound almost bigger than life itself. Right. It's not all me. I mean, it's all me, but... What I, I do you want me to explain this or not? Sure, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. In starting over, near the end of the tune, the tune stops. The time stops. Yeah. He just trails off with a vocal. There's no beat going on or no one's keeping time. It just breaks down and as if the song is ending. And then there's a drum fill that brings the tune back in. It's a triplet 12-8 groove. <clears throat> so it's like three, four, one. I was playing both hands on the hi-hat triplet. Bump, duck, goon. Oh, okay. Right? So the fill was doom, doom, do, 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 one. That was the fill that brought the band in. So the count would have been Three, four, one, one, a two, three, one, two, a three, four. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. One, three, four, boom. They flew in two snare drum beats on the three, one, two, papa, and again on the four, papa, the, the first two notes of a triplet, da da. Data, data. They just took a snare drum from somewhere else and sampled it because they didn't think the fill really had enough bite. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you can imagine if that was just what I played on the toms. It, it, well, I mean, it certainly doesn't have the presence of what they turned it into because you get doom, doom, kaka, kaka. It's big. underneath, but the toms underneath it. So yeah. it sounds like, you know, a building coming down. It's like powerful shit. But I worked out a way to do it last year when we did the tune. Oh, man. I, I worked out a way to do it. What I did was I went on, the, I went bupa bass drum, bupa bass drum on the, th the two last triplets. So it's Papa um papa um, right? Yeah, and it kind of worked when we did had that fill. But I practiced that fill at least twenty five times a day, just the fill, just the fill with my invention on it, trying to get those snare beats in there. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, no, it was snare drum and floor tom like this unison. Papa um papa um. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Boom, 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 bop, 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 right? But that kick drum on, anyhow, for five or six days, I played that fill at least 25 times a day to make sure I could pull it off in my sleep. Because I, you know, sometimes you, you, when there's too much focus on something, it's like you can tense up or, you know, I can fuck it up. 
I'm capable of that. So it's like, I said, man, I am only going to get one chance to nail this. It's like a signature fill. People were saying to me when the record came out, oh, I love the drum fill you did bringing the tune back in. And I had to tell everybody, I didn't play that. I played a bit of it, but that is man-made through sampling. (laughs) People thought I had five arms or something. I said, no, no, no. I know I was one of those people that asked you about it or a long time ago and, and you, you did explain and, and, uh, and I just, I just figured that you figured out a way to do it, but it was, it always baffled me, always mystified me when you really listen to what's happening and that explains it. But yeah, um, I mean, I think what they did is super cool. I mean, I never would have dreamed that up to fly in snare bit, you know, pop up the first two notes of each triplet. Yeah. Heavy rim shot. Papa, papa. I mean, it, it's got attitude. It's yeah. got serious it, attitude, yeah. you know, to go one, two, uh, 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 you know, it, it's got a real fuck you thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Back in. Yeah. Back to nobody told me, um, there's a part at the end of, I guess it's, it's the, um, it's the it's the at the end of each verse as it goes into the chorus. It sounds like you're off the hi hat and just playing, just snare beats. Am I hearing that correctly, or are you just playing the hat really lightly? In other words, that part where just do, before do, you do, 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 yeah do 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 yeah, there's the fill right there that I da, da, da. that I was just talking about. Ba, ba, um, ba, ba, um. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, I I think maybe the hi hat came out. Yeah, and it, you're just playing like a solid, maybe with two hands, maybe or maybe just one. But it sounds like it. I, what what I think is great about it, Andy, is the emptiness of not hearing that hi hat. Again, creates another kind of feeling and then when the hi-hat comes back during the the chorus yeah 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 there's no hi-hat i you know that we just stumbled upon something just a good accident you know these little things come to you and um i suppose you know if you're playing with john lennon you're always thinking about what would ringo do Mm. because you know that he always said to me, Ringo was his favorite drummer. And um, several times he said, man, just play like Ringo and I'll be happy. That's, I so, love you telling me that. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's great. That's I great. guess I had, you know, was trying to channel Ringo and that would be sort of a Ringo-esque thing to just stop and just play the foot and the snare drum. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, you know. Yeah, I, I did think a lot about Ringo throughout all of this because he made a point of telling me, mm-hmm. play like he said, play like Ringo. He's my favorite drummer. And 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 so with that, so I think you're answering the question I'm going to ask. John really kind of gave you free reign to come up with your parts. He didn't he didn't say I want this kind of thing in this song. He just you, you came in and got to. I'm sure he told you well, if he didn't like something, but we would learn we would hear him play the song once or twice then we'd all go to our instruments as we all did back then and then he would perform it and sing it and we'd be playing along 
And we'd just be making stuff up mm-hmm. as we go. But he, you know, we'd get through a take and he'd say, okay, right, drums. Andy, I like the verse. I like that other little bit. He said, but the chorus, I don't want to feel that busy. He said, no, I don't want that bass drum pattern in the chorus. Mm. He Give me, you know, he could walk through my drum part and go like that, like that, don't like that. Let's work something out. And he could do that with Tony Levin on bass. He did it with uh, Hugh McCracken and Earl Slick on guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, he would edit our parts. He could always say, hey, you know, that bit's great. We got to, you got to change that. We got to find something else. So he was very articulate in giving us direction, which I loved. Yeah, yeah. Instead of just wondering, is the artist happy or not? You know, it's if an artist can articulate what they want and what they don't want, that's fantastic to get that direction early yeah. on because you might get a take in a couple of takes and you've got it instead of somebody finally piping up after 10 or 12 takes. Actually, you know, I don't like that bit so much, Andy. You know, I think we need to change it. Well, he would tell you instantly. Yeah, yeah. Get he it, knew, yeah, great. And he loved simplicity. He didn't like any fancy, schmancy, tricky, drum, drummy bullshit. Mm. He wanted it to be straightforward, on the nose, to the point, honest. But forget all the drummy, all that drummy, technical, cutesy, cutesy bullshit. He, he hated all that. He wanted straight ahead groove. So... I I kept it simple because I didn't be the want to be the one to fuck up an early take mm-hmm. by, by trying something a little on the outside. I was like, I put all that stuff away and said, I'm gonna behave myself here. I I am not gonna be the one to ruin a take. <laughs> and I kept it really simple to make sure I wasn't to blame for a take breaking down because he wanted it on the second or third take. He yeah. didn't want to play on and on and on. After six or seven takes, he'd say, all right, we'll, we'll come back to this later. I can't do it because he was singing. And the vocals he was singing, they, they were on the album. Man. They were live vocals. His part, you know, he played really well. I mean, yeah. he had enough years of stage experience. When he played his guitar part, it was locked. When he sang, it was locked into the John Lennon thing that he does, Man. you know, and it was complete. It was a complete persona. His guitar part and his voice, it was the performance. He wanted and kept all those stuff on the record are those early takes with his vocals. I mean, he might have patched a note here or there, but he wasn't fucking around. I mean, he... He wanted a performance. He was performing. Yeah. He was going for it. And actually, when you have somebody, you know, that can play rhythm guitar like that and really put a vibe on something, and, you know, his vocals are completely, well, 
it's just him. You know, he yeah. only knows how to sound like him. But when you play along with an artist that, that is that grounded and has their their whole persona, uh, such a handle on who they are, and they can do their thing, it really tells you what to play. You don't have to imagine very much. When he sat and played those songs to us, it was so obvious what 99% of the drum part was going to be. Yeah, It's like yeah. straightforward. He had it all going on between his rhythm part and his vocal, and they were good songs. Well, I think good songs. A, a, a rhythm section player does not have to overplay to compensate for a weak song. When you're accompanying a really good song, you need to just keep out of the way because the song really can stand up. And he did. I mean, his thing was completely formed and evolved. You didn't need to dream up any fancy shit on any instrument to try to make these tracks happen. Yeah. You just had to behave yourself and take your guidance from him. It all emanated from him. That's that's beautiful. Yeah. And but I'll 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 just say that I think having you and and Huey McCracken and Earl Slick and Tony Levin, you know, like I, I understand what you're saying, Andy, and I and I and I'll just I think that you were able to add something beyond just keeping a beat. You know what I mean? You you had at that point ten years of, of recording experience where you could tastefully add you know, a cymbal swell in a spot where it would be really hip to do that. And, and, you know, the idea of dropping the hi-hat in a certain spot, you know, it's like all those things you maintain of staying out of the way, but also contributing something to making it, you know, a, a great solid yeah. track. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, there's a little, you know, an Andy thing, um, which, you know, it's, I mean, I'm just grateful I got away with what I got away with because as I said, I, I, I did not want to, he didn't want the drums to be all full of personality and grooviness and cool lick. Yeah. He didn't want, you know, he, he's a meat and potatoes guy. Yeah. He's a rhythm and blues guy. You know, it's, he's a Ringo is a groove pocket drummer. Yeah. Yep. That's what he wanted. So, yeah, I had I proceeded very carefully, and I guess yeah, occasionally I managed to get a little little some little lick in here or there. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, it's interesting. I mean that that song that we just played, nobody told me that was released in 1984. So it's you know it's it's even though it was recorded in 1980, but just even the fact that it's 40 years old, that, that we were listening to it on the radio 40 years ago is just incredible. And it's still, and my point being, it still holds up today. I mean, you, it just sounds every bit as great as it did back then that, you know, the, the instruments don't sound dated. It's not like a, you know, like a, like some of the eighties music that we mm. indulge ourselves in, you know, that has that dated sound to it. So bravo, and you know, for John, to John and all you guys. For bringing it well he he was also into <clears throat> had come out of the beatles and then spent those years doing lots quite a bit of kind of outside music yeah you know 
not down the middle mainstream, you know, great pop tunes. And it seemed like on this record, he'd had enough of experimentation and he sort of was writing straight ahead tunes, kind of reminiscent maybe of how he would have written in the Beatles. Mm-hmm. You know, the songs, the songs stood up yeah, yep. really, really well. I mean, having said that, there are tunes during his solo career before Double Fantasy that are great tunes, like, you know, Imagine, for one. Sure, yeah. So, yeah. but it, it seemed on this album like he was back to doing, I don't know, what we knew him for. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the production and the background vocals, Woman, was Beatlesque. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I remember when the record came out, Andy. I thought the same thing. Is it just it was so reminiscent of just of uh, of you know um, just kind of I hate to say simple, but just great pop tunes, great great tunes. You know, great melodies, mm. great vocals, great playing. Um, yeah, he was in a good space. I never knew him before. He was so upbeat and so full of energy. And so kind of positive and having such a great time just playing and being stupid and carrying on yeah. all his antics in the studio. You know, he was unstoppable, really. But he was in a very, very positive frame of mind. And I thought, well, I'm glad I met him now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like he's really on form. <laughs> yeah. I, I And I know we talked about this, too a while ago and um and there was talk of him taking a band out i mean there'd been sort of ideas put forth that maybe you know this record was so big and that he had this kind of renewed feeling of wanting to make music again it would have been really just amazing to take that band out and and um he asked us in the studio after a few weeks he said um look, I'm thinking about doing some live shows that I don't want to go and do a concert tour, but a couple of select shows in different cities and we'll broadcast it into the cinemas. Wow. That that was when that started happening. Yeah, yep. Where, you know, they would televise a concert into cinemas and you'd pay a, go into a movie theater and see a concert in Tokyo or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, I want to do some shows. He says, you guys up for that? I of course not. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm sorry. Please. Come on, man. I'm too old to go on the road. No. It was like, you know, we're like, yes. Yes, I'm totally up for that. No problem. No problem. Yeah, I'm ready. Oh. No, it yeah. seemed like he wanted to perform live, but you know, that never came about. Yeah, I'm sorry for your loss, Andy. All these years later, and and uh, you know, all of our loss. Yeah, everybody. Those of you out there that I know, thanks for tuning in. And um, John, as usual, you do all this stuff really good. I get oh, a kick out you. of it, and. Uh, Hope I delivered the goods, man. You absolutely did. Without a doubt, you are the returning champion. Absolutely. I I so appreciate it. Hey, look, I'm voting for you in November, Mr. President. Okay? (laughs) 
You're the man. You're the man. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, hang tight, Andy. One second. I'll, I'll end the stream. Thanks for watching, everybody. A big hand for my pal, the legendary Andy Newmark. All right, man. Thanks, man. Thanks, Thank thanks for watching, everybody. All right, well, that's my show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, give it a like. Leave me a comment. Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you haven't done that already. And the podcast is available on all the podcast platforms, so download it. And remember, no drummers are ever harmed on Live From My Drum Room or Track Talk. And drummers, when in doubt, leave it out. All right, again, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again real soon. See ya.